are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Amen. Good morning, church. All right. I'll let you slide with that one. That was pretty good. It's great to see all of you this morning. Um, exciting morning uh, here at Emmanuel Church. And so so grateful to see all of you this morning. We're especially excited uh, to have Austin Baker and his wife Christine with us. And also their three children, Riley, Ellie, and Aiden, who are in the child care um, area back there. So really great to have these guys with us. I know uh, that many of you, in fact, probably most of you over the course of the weekend have had a chance to, to meet Austin and Christine. So Austin met with our church staff on Friday afternoon and got to know them a bit. And then Friday night, got together with GC leaders over at the Robinson home. And then I saw many of you yesterday out at Cahaba Brewing uh, for a little get-together from from 11 to 1. It was just so fun um, to see Austin getting to know uh, some of you uh, precious brothers and sisters. And so Austin's here at the recommendation um, of the pastor search committee, recommending him to be the next uh, lead pastor of a Manual. So it's been a long season, and we're really grateful to be here and excited about this day. So, uh, so in just a moment, he's going to come preach the word. At the conclusion of the service, um, any folks in here who are covenant members of Emmanuel will have a chance to to vote on Austin being the next lead pastor to affirm the the search committee's recommendation. And so we'll give you some more instructions on that. Um, but just wanted to give you a heads up, Austin. We're really looking forward to it. Let me read this text from John. John chapter 7. Y'all can turn with me there. John 7, verses 37 through 39. I'll give you just a second to find it. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Hi. Um, good morning. This is a, really a, um, just a surreal day in a variety of ways for me. I'm going to, let's see. Oh, there we go. Perfect. Um, one is uh, I... I've just been so overwhelmed with the kindness of you this weekend and throughout this entire process. I've met many of you for the first time these last couple of days, and I probably have forgotten your names. I think I remember some of them. Um, I hope. I know your faces, at least. I'm so grateful for you, um, just meeting you uh, in hopes that, you know, I will, by God's grace, step, be stepping into this role to lead you as your lead pastor. And the second reason this is kind of surreal for me is I've known some of you in this room for more than half of my life. And I think about Cody. Um, where is Cody? Where is he sitting? There you are. Um, you know, when I first met Cody, he was uh, in a band with my little brother and his twin brother, Josie, in middle school. And they were called Cross-Eyed. Um, and... <laughs> Uh, it's time for a reunion tour, um, but I think about like his friendship to me. You know, he was in my wedding, we were in their wedding. Uh, I think about Buster. I'm at ninth grade. I, there's so many people in this room that have had such a God has used to shape me and really direct the course of my life in so many ways. Logan introduced my wife and I 
you know, in college. I mean, it's just, it's amazing to be here with you and just be reminded of God's faithfulness to my family and to me through so many of you that are here. Um, but I think, I think the third reason, and probably the most surreal part of being here, is that I remember um, nine or ten years ago, Christine and I were living here in Birmingham, and I got a call from Cody, and they were sending a team, a core team, to pray about planting a church in Birmingham, Alabama. And I remember many of you, uh, Buster, Michelle, Cody, Logan, I think you might have been there, Andy was with y'all, Dave Smith was with you. You came and you parked at my house, and we walked together. I walked with you through Southside, through downtown Birmingham, and we prayed together that God would give you a place to plant a church to make a dent in this city for the gospel and the nations. And I look out over this church now, 10 years later, and see the fruit of those prayers. And it's just an amazing testimony of God's grace to be standing here, um, having been praying for you before you were you as Emmanuel Baptist Church, and uh, it just truly is amazing. Um, so I'm grateful to the Lord for that. Now, I've followed your journey uh, from even before you were a church, and I have prayed for you often from Atlanta, uh, where we've been the last eight years, and through all the highs of Emmanuel, through all the lows of Emmanuel, and I look forward to possibly partnering, partnering with you in a more hands-on, tangible way here in the days to come. And I also, I just really want to thank your pastoral search team and your elders through this process. Um, it, they have been extremely diligent in prayer. They have sought the Lord's counsel in so many ways. You know, from my vantage point, it's like, you guys are taking forever. Um, but, uh, but I'm grateful for that. I'd rather you take a long time and be certain than take a short time and, and bring in the wrong person, right? And so... I want to thank you all. It's been a joy to get to know you on the team, and I look forward to getting to know you and your families even more. And so, as I mentioned before, for the last eight years, Christine and I, my family, we've been serving in Atlanta, Georgia, Marietta, Johnson Ferry Baptist Church in Marietta, Georgia. Um, I was a teaching pastor there. I guess I still am for the next hour. Um, and the Connections pastor at Johnson Ferry. And I've been married to my wife, Christine, for 13 years. Um, it's been an amazing 13 years. She is way smarter and way more accomplished than I will ever be in my life. You need to get to know her. She was, she's awesome. We have three children, as mentioned before, two daughters and a son. Riley is three. Ellie is 21 months, and Aiden is three months. And our lives are insane all the time. Somebody asked me earlier how sleep was this weekend. Uh, we need, we'll talk about that later. Um, but parenting, you know, parenting is one of the most rewarding things in my life. It's also one of the ways that God exposes so many of my shortcomings as a human being, as a man of God, as a father. But I love my family. You'll know that about me. I love my family. Someone asked me on Friday night, what's the best way we can serve you? And I said, you can love my family. Um, because I love my family. And uh, I can't wait for you to know them. They're amazing, amazing people. But before we dive into our text for this morning, I'd love to pray again. And just ask the Holy Spirit just to guide our time together. So pray with me. Father, we believe in the Holy Spirit. And we believe, oh God, that you have a word for us this morning through your word. And I pray, Father, um, over the course of the next 30, 30-ish minutes, that you transform us by the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. May we leave today changed with greater affections for you and for your glory. And may you just equip us and build us up as a people and may we leave 
seeking the glory of the Lord in Birmingham and the nations. We love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So when the elders called me a few weeks ago uh, to ask me to consider coming to preach in view of a call to you on January 30th, uh, on the phone call, I was super excited. And then I hung up the phone and was completely overwhelmed with terror (laughs) because I have, one, never been a a lead pastor, two, never preached a sermon in view of a call. And so I was like, what in the world is this actually going to look like? How is this different from any other sermon? I've preached a lot of sermons, but I've never preached one quite this unique. And then I realized um, that's really not any different than any other sermon. You know, you pray, you ask the Spirit to guide you to a text that He is leading you to preach from, that He lays on your heart for the community of faith to be built up. And so I did that. I prayed. I sought the Lord to guide me to a text, uh, to bring some scripture to mind that I feel like by His grace would be beneficial to us all. And He led me to John 7, 37 to 39. And actually, the more I studied and I meditated upon this text, I, I really more clearly understood why God led me to this text. Um, two of my heroes of the faith, you get to know me, you're going to know this, are Jonathan Edwards and John Piper. And they're basically the same person, um, Jonathan Piper. Um, and, but one of the central themes in their lives and one of the central themes in their work is this theme of holy affections. And about a decade ago, um, I read Jonathan Edwards' classic work, Religious Affections, and I recommend it to anyone, if you want a a good read, to pick it up and read it. It's been around for about, you know, 300 years, um, but it's a timeless timeless book. And affections, that word affections with an A, not with an E, is a word that we uh, don't really use a lot in our culture. Sometimes the word itself may get even a little confusing with the word emotions, You know, aren't emotions and affections the same thing? But affections are not simply emotions, although they have emotions attached to them. But affections are are deeper. You know, emotions, uh, they're often fleeting, right? They kind of rise and fall based on circumstances. They they don't really lead to long-lasting change in your life. But affections, although they have emotions attached... They lead to and fuel devotion. And the affections, when your affections are are stirred up for someone or something, it involves your mind, it involves your feelings, but it also involves your will. You know, affections lead you to act. They lead you to change. They drive how you live your life. You know, Edwards defines it like this. He says, the strongest, uh, affections are the strongest motivations of the human self ultimately determining everything the person is and does. I'm going to read that again because it's, it's really good. Affections are the strongest motivations of the human self, ultimately determining everything the person is and everything the person does. So not only do affections drive you to act, but they define who you are. What you're affectionate about really makes up your being. It dictates everything in your life. And we can speak of affections really in two different ways. Now, the first way is we ask the Spirit, as we did earlier, to stir up our affections, to stir up our desires for the things of the Lord, for the glory of His name. We ask Him to stir up our our hatred for sin and our love for obedience, right? Our love to worship. And when He does stir up those affections in us, the culmination of affections is praise, right? When you're affected by something, you praise that object or that person. 
for the glory of that object or that person. John 7, 37 to 39, it speaks to our affections. It lays out the universal cravings of the human heart, and it directs our cravings to the source of that satisfaction, namely Jesus Christ. And as the people of God, we are invited by Christ to come drink deep of the well, the fountain that he provides, and behold his glory and have the Holy Spirit begin to stir up in us affections that will impact this city, that will impact our families, that will impact the nations. So I want to look at our text for this morning. Um, I'm going to read verse 37 again. John writes in John chapter 7, verse 37, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So just to give you a little context to where we're at here in the Gospel of John, this feast that John is referring to here is the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles is another name it was called. This was one of the three major feasts celebrated by the Jewish people on an annual basis. It was eight days long, and it celebrated the end of the agricultural year, when the harvest was completed. According to Leviticus 23, in your Old Testament, as it's laying out this, these feasts, the first day of the feast and the eighth day of the feast, so the beginning and the end, were Sabbath days. No work was to be done on those days. Sacrifices were made on those days. And the entirety of John chapter 7 from verse 1 all the way to the end of John chapter 7 is recounting from beginning to end the life of Jesus during the Feast of Booths, this particular Feast of Booths. And on this great day, the final day, day 8, Jesus stands up and he gives this invitation. But to give even more weight to the words of Jesus here in John chapter 7, you have to, we're going to briefly unpack a ritual that was involved with the Feast of Booths called the Water Rite Ritual. On each of the first seven days of the feast, uh, the way this would work is that the high priest would go and fill up a cup, a golden cup, out of the pool of Siloam. And the high priest would take this cup filled with water and lead a procession from the pool of Siloam all the way to the temple. And they would get to the temple, and as this was going on, someone would blow the shofar, you know, a big horn that was symbolic of victory, of joyful times, joyful victory. And as everyone was watching the priest, they would walk around the altar in the temple with this golden cup. They'd walk around the altar. And as they're walking, they'd have a temple choir, and the choir would be singing Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. And when they finished Psalm 118, when the last psalm was read, the men would take branches in their right hands and a piece of citrus fruit in their left, and they'd hold it up to be symbolic of the harvest. And they would cry out three times, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. And the priest would pour the water out into a silver bowl. And as this water is being poured out, this ritual would, would really signify, be reminded, uh, the people would be reminded of two things. They'd be reminded that God has provided for them, that he provided for them in the desert from the rock, twice water in the Old Testament, as the people were in the wilderness. And then the second thing it would remind them of was they were awaiting a day when the Messiah would come and pour out the Holy Spirit, much like this water is being poured out into this bowl. And so when Jesus stands up, on the eighth day, and gives the invitation to come and to drink, this water rite which ritual had just been done the previous six days. 
and he's standing up and he's giving an invitation that he is the one that is the fulfillment of all of this water, that he is the one through whom the Holy Spirit would be poured out on the people. And it'd be hard for those Jews in attendance watching this ceremony and also hearing the words of Jesus not to think about Isaiah 55, verse 1, where the Lord says through Isaiah, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Come to me. Come to me and I will fulfill your longing hearts, your thirsty hearts. You know, being thirsty, which I'm kind of thirsty right now, it's a, it's a universal human experience, right? Everybody in this room knows what it is to be thirsty to some degree. And the sensation or feeling of, of being thirsty, when you're truly thirsty, you, you really can't think of anything else except finding water, finding something to drink. It consumes your thoughts, it consumes your mind, directs your life. i got to find some water. And if you're in a a dire situation where severe dehydration is kind of starting to set in, you start to feel the even more drastic effects of being thirsty. You start to hallucinate. Your body starts to lose all its moisture. Your lips will crack. Your mouth will get parched. You you would probably even die if you didn't find water. Not probably, you would. You would die if you didn't find water. You know, when I think about a a depiction of what it is to be thirsty, truly thirsty in my mind, um, if you've read the book Unbroken, about uh, Louis Zamperini, seen the movie, um, those guys in the raft, you know, they're in this, Louis Zamperini, World War II pilot, he's an Olympian, went down in the Pacific Ocean with some other guys, they were on a life raft for 47 days waiting to be rescued, and they experienced extreme dehydration. And I think in my mind, thinks about those images of those guys, seeing things, dying, a couple of them dying, awaiting rescue, and the irony of all of that is they're in the middle of a vast ocean of water, but they can't drink any of it because it will further dehydrate them. Because that's the worst thing you can do when you're thirsty, is drink something or consume something that will just further dehydrate you. Salt water, coffee, Coke, beer, wine. I mean, fill in the blank. You drink it when you're thirsty, you're just going to get more thirsty. Many of those things we may go to for temporary enjoyment, for our physical thirst, are not what we need in the moment to satisfy our thirst. It'll actually make us more thirsty. Now, we're not... We're not dumb. We know that. We know that physically. We know what it, when it comes to quenching our physical thirst that we need actual water, clean water to do that. But how often we forget where to go when we need to satisfy our spiritual thirst, our spiritual cravings, our spiritual affections on a regular basis. You know, it's the second time in the Gospel of John that Jesus has invited someone to drink of living water. John chapter 4, the invitation goes out to a Samaritan woman. Jesus is the living water. Drink of this water and you'll never thirst again. But whereas in John 4, Jesus offers living water to one person in Samaria, he's now offering it to anyone who is willing to come to him and find their satisfaction in him. Now, the God of the Bible, the God that we serve, the God we have dedicated and devoted our lives to, he is a God of invitation. From the very beginning of the Bible, God has been inviting his people to find their satisfaction in him. When Adam and Eve sin in the garden, they're hiding in a bunch of bushes, wearing these pathetic self-made loincloths, 
just hoping God will pass them by. When, when they're hiding in that place, God comes to them and he asks Adam a question, where are you? And that's not a question rooted in deficiency of knowledge, for God knows all things. He knew they were hiding in the bushes. But it's a question of invitation. Come out of hiding and come into the light. Come out of darkness and come stand before me. There are consequences for your sin, but in me you will find mercy and grace. But how often we stay in the darkness, seeking to quench our thirst on a variety of different things, substances, sex, possessions, and money, even good things like success and achievement, things like good deeds not rooted in Christ, seeking to find ourselves in ourselves the righteousness we need to stand before him. We have to use Jeremiah's words in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. We've forsaken God, the fountain of living water, and hewed out for ourselves cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. Our faces are covered with dust and grime, for we tend to drink from nothing more than piles of dirt. C.S. Lewis says it like this. You probably heard this before. It would seem that the Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what it's meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. You know, I don't know you yet. Yeah, I hope to get to know you pretty well. I don't know you yet. I don't know where you come from. I don't know where you are now. I don't know your story. I don't know where you spend your time and energy and your money. I don't know where you go to find deep cravings, the deep cravings of your soul satisfied. I don't know what you do in the dark when nobody else is around and you think nobody sees. I don't know the guilt and the shame you may feel for recent sins committed or recent good things omitted. I don't know those things. But I do know this. Jesus Christ is inviting you to come to him and drink full of the well that he provides. And he's asking you to forsake your broken cisterns that hold no water, that leave you even more parched and dirty than before. And to come to the only one that can satisfy your soul. Emmanuel Church has been known, through my knowledge of you, it's been known as, and I pray by God's grace, continues to be known, as a place where Jesus will always stand as a strong yet gentle refuge for any of those that are finding their source of protection in Him. You know, sin is serious. You know, sin costs God the death of His only Son. And yet God's mountain of grace dwarfs any molehill of sin in this room. So let's heed the invitation of Christ. So Jesus extends to us his invitation from the well that he provides in this text in verse 37. And then let's read together as he further explains the effects of those who take refuge in him. John chapter 7 verses 38, 38 and 39. Let's read this together. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. 
For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So what does it mean? I mean, you know, I think about John 6, the chapter right before this, where Jesus, like, feeds a bunch of people, and then he says, hey, come eat my flesh and drink my blood, which is real bizarre, right? And people leave. <laughs> they all leave, which I'm, I'm like, that's not surprising. Uh, that's pretty weird. Uh, that's why people in the, that were critics of the early church in the first century thought they were cannibals. Because they talked about coming and taking part of communion is, is, you know, drinking the blood of Christ and eating the flesh of his body and the bread, right? So I, I, this is such a, a weird statement. Come to me and drink. Well, what, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to come to Jesus and drink? Well, he explains it to us in verse 38. It means to believe that he is who he says he is. It means to believe that he is the promised Messiah, to believe that he is the satisfier of our souls. This is an act of grace from God through faith in Christ. And the effect of this belief is complete and utter transformation. The heart that is parched in verse 37 is now a heart that flows with rivers of living water. You know, living water, the phrase living water, uh, it brings to mind uh, many allusions to the Old Testament. I mean, Jesus, obviously, uh, the author, primary author of the Old Testament, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, he knew his Old Testament. But there isn't one specific place in the Old Testament where it says, you know, as the scripture says, this verse, as it says right here, so there's not one verse that that points to. But what Jesus has done here is he's taken a variety of verses, he's kind of mashed them together into one verse. He's Jesus, he can do that. Um, and he does it right here. And there's two major places that are referring, this verse is referring to in the Old Testament. The first, we've already hit on this, this reminder of God providing water from the rock to the people in the desert. But the second is from Ezekiel 47, verses 1 through 12. Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12. It was a, a text, we're not going to read it directly, but it was a text, Ezekiel sees this vision of the temple in the last days. And out of this temple runs a river of water. Running water or living water flows out of the temple and brings life to anything that it touches. So here you have Jesus. And if you're reading the entirety of the Gospel of John, you read that in chapter 2, Jesus has already called himself the temple, right? Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days in John chapter 2. John 4, in our text for today, he calls himself uh, the source of living water, right? So water giving life flowing from the temple is speaking of Christ and the water flowing from him, the temple of God, the water of life flowing out of him. But John takes it a step further. And John says that not only will that living water be flowing from the temple, namely Jesus, but it will also be flowing from all those that he provides life to in himself, you and me. If we place our trust in Christ, well, how can this be? Well, John tells us, verse 39, through the Holy Spirit. That's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 can call us temples of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. For those of us that are in Christ Jesus, who have drank from the well of Christ, who have found life in Jesus, who have been filled with the Holy Spirit, we are all now little temples comprising one big temple out of which flows living water, namely the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. 
has a variety of implications for us, a variety, individually and corporately as a church. We're going to hit on three. So let's start individually. First implication of this truth for us in this room individually. It means that if you're in Christ, you have a new heart. You have a new heart. The prophets spoke a lot about this, that in the last days God would take your heart of stone and he would replace it with a heart of flesh. That he would take your cold, hard, dead heart and he would replace it with a life-giving, life-center, full of the Holy Spirit, beating to a new drum heart. And with a new heart comes new affections. You know, during my time at Johnson Ferry, I was, uh, being the Connection Pastor, I was always in the Connection Center um, receiving anyone that had questions about church or about faith or about Christ or fill in the blank. So I, I met a lot of people every single week, ministered to a lot of people in that way. And I would have people come up to me all the time, all the time, seeking questions, having questions and seeking answers about assurance of salvation. How do I know I'm saved? How do I know that God has saved me? And a lot of times these questions were rooted in, you know, maybe they'd walked away from the faith for a little bit. Maybe they were involved in some kind of sin that they're like, I just don't know how this, I don't know how I'm a believer because I keep struggling with this, X, Y, and Z. And those aren't always bad questions, right? It's it's good to look at our lives in light of the scriptures, to do some self-analysis. You know, Calvin says the beginning of wisdom is knowledge of God and knowledge of yourself. It's good to have an adequate, accurate knowledge of who you are. But at the same time, the temptation in those moments for me, talking to these people, is to approach this answer, how do I know I'm saved, the answer is in a very lazy, unbiblical way. And what I mean by that is you can take the checklist approach to justify if somebody is not or is or is not a believer. Do you go to church? Well, yeah, I'm here. Do you, are you in a Bible study? Yeah, I mean, I like to, I'm there every once in a while. Do you serve? Awesome, great. Do you give? Great, awesome. Check, 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 check. You must be a Christian. Or no check, no check, no check. You must not be a Christian. And there's nothing farther from the Bible than that checklist approach. I mean, you think about John chapter, or Matthew chapter 7, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, hey, people will come to me on that day saying, Lord, Lord, do we not cast out demons? Do we not do this? Do we not checklist these things? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. So if there's anything we know from the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, it's that you can be doing all the right things and completely miss Jesus. You can be doing all the right external things and not have a new heart. You can be doing all the right actions and not be transformed internally. And so we need to caution ourselves into thinking, well, if I just do this and this and this and this and this, then I am okay. So when people come and ask me these questions now, how do I know, how do I know that I'm a Christian? My first question to them is, what do you desire? Where are your affections? What does your heart want? Do you want the things of Christ When you sin, do you desire to repent and turn back to Jesus? What what are the cravings of your heart? When Christ puts his spirit in us, he makes us alive. And with this aliveness, with these new hearts, we have new desires. We have new cravings. We have new affections. We want new things. 
We, not, we don't just want the things God can do for us or give us. We want Him. We want Him and to make His name known for the glory of His name. So that's the first thing. You have a new heart. First implication of having the Spirit. Second, let's think corporately for just a second. So the river in Ezekiel 47 flowing out of the temple brought life to everything it touched. So we, as the body of Christ, as Emmanuel Church, little temples comprising one big temple here, we are to have living water, the Holy Spirit, giving life to everything we're around. So the question is, does Emmanuel Church bring life to everything it touches? Is Emmanuel known among its members and in this community as a place that carries with it the aroma of Christ? You know, the mission statement of this church, I love it. By the way, it's a great mission statement. It says that we are a diverse family of disciples living to make the real Jesus known in Birmingham and beyond. The real Jesus. Or in other words, the whole Jesus. Not just one aspect of his character, but who he is. Holy. Not just the coming back on a white horse to slay you, Jesus, right? Although he is coming back to judge the living and the dead. Not just the, hey, everybody gets in, doesn't matter anything, I'm going to give you a bunch of hugs, Jesus, although he is full of grace and mercy, and my daughter thinks he likes to give hugs. I'm sure he does. Um, We had that conversation the other day. We can talk about that later. Um, But the Jesus that John tells us in verse 39 is now glorified. He's not on a cross anymore. He's not in the tomb anymore. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, literally holding all things together in this world by the word of his power. That if he ceases to speak us into existence, we will cease to be. This is the Christ that we find the culmination of in our affections. This is is where our affections kind of reach their apex. Our heart's deepest, most fundamental desires and affections find their satisfaction in Jesus. But the satisfaction of those affections is then designed to be turned into worship, into praise. It's like going to a restaurant and eating a delicious meal. You know, if you've eaten a delicious meal, I'm sure you have, or drank a delicious drink, fill in the blank, whatever that drink is. The first thing you want to do is complete your joy by telling somebody. Your joy is not complete until you share it, right? So what do you do? You tell your wife or your spouse or somebody close to you. You post it on social media. This place was great. You bring somebody back with you the next time to share in your affection, to share in your joy. So when our our souls find their deepest cravings met in Jesus, our joy is not complete until our affections have turned into worship. We have affections in order to be affectionate. Affections are not an end in themselves, but they produce something greater. And when we behold the risen Christ in glory, our heart's affections are stirred up and praise is on our lips. The Spirit brings to our minds the person of Christ and stirs up our hearts to desire him more and to praise him. So, Emmanuel Church, we want to seek to have our affections as a people satisfied in the right things, namely Jesus. 
We need to make it a habit to gaze upon the beauty of Christ, to look full in his wonderful face, to see him in his word and have our hearts transformed by the Holy Spirit. And we anticipate the day when, to quote Revelation 22.5, and we will see his face, right? We'll behold him fully, and our heart's affections will turn into worship. So let me pray for us, and then we'll continue on in our worship. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit. We pray, God, to be an affectionate people. People that don't just do the right things, but crave the right things. That desire the right things. The deeper our desires are, the deeper we will want you. And may our affections be turned into praise. May our affections be turned into worship for the glory of your name. Not for the glory of this church, not for the glory of us individually, but for the glory of your name in Birmingham and to the nations. We pray, Father, that you fill us up, continue to have streams of living water flow through us by your Spirit, continue to change us more into the image of Jesus Christ as we behold him in his glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.